South African scientist Professor Deborah Roberts has been nominated to head World Expert Body on Climate Crisis as well. So they call her a veteran Durban climate activist. Thank you so much, Professor Deborah Roberts, for joining us here on Ubuntu Radio. Only a pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience, Tully. You're not new um, in this important body of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is one of the UN bodies. Um, it was established in 1988, and its job is really to provide policymakers with an objective source of information about human-induced climate change, what causes it, what its impacts are, and how we may, may respond. It works in assessment cycles, um, and during the course of an assessment cycle, they generally five to seven years in length, a variety of, of reports on climate change will be produced. What we're heading towards now are the elections for the Bureau of the Seventh Assessment Cycle. The Bureau is the scientific leadership uh, of, of the body, and I've uh, been nominated by South Africa uh, to be a candidate for the chair of, of that organization. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to, why is it important to have a South African in the body like this, especially in the, in the, in the hell? So I've been a co-chair of, of working group two of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. There, there are three working groups who are responsible for producing these, these big assessment reports. Um, and I've been responsible for co-chairing the working group that looks at impacts, adaptation and vulnerability. And therein lies the importance for Africa of a leadership position in this, this organization. Africa is amongst the most vulnerable of the continents to to climate change. Climate change is not only undermining our development aspirations, but also undermining development gains through impacts such as floods and droughts, extreme heat. It's impacting our food and water security. And so it's really important as we head into this uh, decade of action. So the UN has declared this decade the decade of action, um, where we hope to bend curves on poverty and inequity and climate change and biodiversity, that we've got an African voice at, at the table to ensure that the, the broad interests of those who are most vulnerable to, to climate change are also well represented in these important bodies that are assessing the science, which provides the basis for, for the policy development at, at the international level. You know, Africa is hugely challenged, but there are also enormous opportunities in Africa because we don't have the development lock-in that other parts of the world have. So if you're fundamentally going to put the world on a different path, Africa is one of the great opportunities for, for change. So we're a continent with great challenges, but also enormous opportunities in, in the climate change space. Mm. You um, sought after research as far as issues of environment and climate change are concerned. President Ramaphosa said you are a naturally bridge builder. Why is that? Well, you know, early on in my career, so I, I trained um, uh, as a scientist. My, my early career was was in academia. But as I, I you know, moved through my career, um, I, I recognized that staying in the research environment perhaps wasn't going to drive the change that I wanted to see my science delivering in, in the real world. And so I moved into local government in 1994 when the country moved to, to democracy. And so I've literally had a foot in both camps, both science and, and policy for over 30 years. 
And because I work between those two communities, you've got to learn to build bridges because those two communities use a different language. Um, they use different terminology. They have different priorities. And so if you're going to span the worlds of, of policy, practice and, and science, you've got to build bridges to be able to enable these two communities to talk together. And I think that's an important skill to bring to chairing the IPCC because the panel is in fact made up of 195 governments, all of which have national priorities. They have different resources, different capabilities. And so there are many different views around the table. And so those bridge building skills that I've honed at the local level now are tremendously valuable at, at the international level. What do you stand to gain from playing a leading role at the crucial issues of climate change and environment is concerned on a global stage? So the way I've, I've always viewed uh, my career, I've, I've always seen that there is a huge value for science to be in service uh, to, to society. So I've been a public servant my whole life. Uh, you know, I've used my skills as, as a scientist to inform policy development and, and decision making at, at the local level. And I really see that this nomination and if I was to be elected as a continuation of, of that public service. And that for me is important. You know, I think there are many branches of, of uh, science that can be incredibly useful to, to society. And so for me, that's the personal gain is really showing how science can be a key toolbox in changing the world for the better, making it more sustainable, uh, making sure that we improve well-being, that we tackle injustice issues, that we do a better job on issues like climate change and, and biodiversity. And for me, that's a powerful message. It's a powerful message also recognizing the importance of African science. You know, that mm. the kind of science that I've done has been very practically focused. Um, and, and I think that's a very powerful form of, of science to, to bring to the world. So I think it's an endorsement not only of the fact that science is increasingly an important part of how we tackle the challenges and harness the opportunities of the world, but it's also a recognition of African leadership in doing science that can be transformative. And I think that's vital because we're on a critical path. Uh, we are facing extremely severe climate change challenges for many parts of the world. If we don't increase our ambition, there will be real existential threats for people. So this is a key moment for action. This is a key decade in which we need to see a sea change in, in the way that we um, approach the climate change challenge. Women activists, are there women activists on the issue of climate change or is still so much mainly do men dominated as well? If selected by majority votes uh, next week, I would be the first woman and the first person from Africa to, to lead the intergovernmental panel in, in 35 years. Um, and that sends an important signal. I think it sends an important signal to female scientists around the world that their science and their leadership is respected and, and valued. And I hope will encourage more to, to join the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. But it sends a, a particularly important message to scientists, female scientists from, from the global south. And I've encountered that in this assessment cycle because I've been one of only three female co-chairs of the working groups uh, over the last 35 years. Um, so the first uh, woman to co-lead working group two. And during the course of the assessment cycle, so many of my colleagues, particularly from the Global South, came to me and said, it's really important to see you on the podium because it empowers us 
to understand yeah. the importance yeah. of, of the work that we do. So leadership really does matter. You know, who leads an organization is, is a significant choice. In terms of why gender is an important issue, it's a critical issue. If you read our working group two report, you'll see that we ask the gender question of, of many of, of these challenges. And it's particularly important for our continent because some of the most vulnerable people on our continent to climate change are women and, and women head many households. They're responsible for taking decisions in, in those households. So women are a vital part of both experiencing the challenges and they are extremely vulnerable to that, but they're also a critical part of, of the, the solution. We are, of course, seeing more, more women involved in, in science around the world. You know, there's a strong uh, motivation even in our country to get more youth into the STEM subjects, particularly young girls trained in, in that arena. So we are seeing a slightly better representation. We still got a, a lot of work to do. And, and women are active. You know, if you look at the youth activists, um, you know, people will immediately think, for example, of, of Greta Thunberg. But on our own continent, we've got people like Vanessa Nakate who are mobilizing around these important issues because the young people can see that their future is very heavily compromised by the changes uh, that are happening. I was on a presidential climate change uh, commission webinar where we were presenting the last of the uh, IPCC reports for for the cycle. And the youth commissioner on the commission was telling us that when she was talking to her peers, that one of them said that their only aspiration in relation to climate change, they wanted to be able to die of old age. Now, that for me is a very telling statement from our youth, that their aspiration about their future is the desire to die of old age and not the impacts of climate change. I mean, that's quite different, I think, perhaps to when you and I were growing up and what our aspirations for our, our future were, which I think yeah, gives us a sense of, of why this work is important and, and why we need more women who are the most vulnerable involved in, in the discussion. Let's look at um, whether science and politics, where do they, they meet? Because there's always this debate about our politicians listening to scientists is the one informing the other, right? Because we can have great policies, but from, if there's no political will to implement, it's going to be a, a key challenge. And we have seen with different COPs, for example, how different countries really contest in terms of, um, you know, these agreements, you know, uh, talking about even issues of financing as well. But I want you to look at these important issues of Science scientists uh, playing a very key role, but are they being heard, you think? So I, th- I think one thing that is really important about the, the IPCC, and I've, I've spoken about these two different worlds of, yeah. of science and policy and the need to build bridges between them. The IPCC is a really important bridge between those two worlds because through the way it operates, it brings into the same room lead policymakers in the world, lead scientists in the world. And they go through a process of co-production in okay. terms of, of the reports. So the, the, the governments will decide what reports they want written. We'll hold scoping meetings. The scientists will develop an outline that will go back to the governments. They'll approve that. The scientists will write the reports. The reports are then reviewed by the government. And then we go into to a joint uh, process of approval where the governments work line by line through the report. So it's this very interesting dialogue between policy and science, which is why when our summary reports come out, they, they reflect 
the 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 aspirations needs of of the the policymakers but also what what is in the science and so i think that's a very powerful process of having a mutual conversation but that's just the first step in in the value chain obviously once the reports are are available as you say the next step is that they need to inform policy in in different areas of of the world and that then uh, hands it over effectively to to the political side. It depends on political will. It depends on societal will. And and what our science is clearly indicating is the kind of massive changes that we need to be making to our economy, to our development aspirations, and so on, required to address climate change are indeed possible, but only possible if there is is political will um, and societal will. The science unfortunately shows that at the moment we've got a huge gap in terms of ambition and implementation. So you've got the Paris Agreement, which is our highest level of of policy ambition reached internationally. But at this point, if we continue with the kind of policies we saw implemented before the Glasgow COP, COP26, you know, we're on route to uh, potentially uh, exceeding three degrees of, of global warming by the end of the century and more likely than not to cross the, the 1.5 degrees of global warming in the early parts of the 2030s. So political and societal will is absolutely key. Do we have the level of ambition we need currently to realize uh, the ambition of something like Paris Agreement? The answer is simply no. Um, and so that that is the real challenge at at this this particular point in time. You do have big countries who are known to be you know contributing quite a lot as far as the uh, greenhouse gas is concerned or all that in terms of their willingness to uh, the the finance that must be made available to 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 these vulnerable countries as well countries in the Caribbean to make sure that uh, when those severe they, they are affected by climate change that happens that they have got the money to be able to to adapt and um where, where does where, where does the IPCC stand on that and some of the issues that that are nuanced as far as the direction where where, where you want governments to 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 be headed so the IPCC has a mantra the work that we do is policy relevant but not policy prescriptive so we never sit in judgment on okay. on what is done by by countries our job is merely to provide the science so that that can be used in an objective sense but the science is addressing some of the issues that that you are talking about so for example in terms of finance available generally we can see that the majority of globally tracked finance is going to mitigation so that's reducing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere either by reducing emission levels or creating more sinks. But even with mitigation where the bulk of the money is going, we need three to six times more um, uh, funds going into to that to achieve the ambitions of, of the Paris Agreement. Far less going into adaptation. So we've got a chronic shortfall on adaptation finance, which which is a, a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, we also don't really have a perspective on how much adaptation finance is necessary. And so that's a, an important knowledge gap that needs to be addressed. So what we can say is that finance is inadequate across both mitigation and adaptation, but by far the largest gap on adaptation. And, and we make it very clear that we're not going to be able to close these adaptation gaps unless there is a rapid escalation in in the funding that's given to adaptation. And mm-hmm. mitigation and adaptation require slightly different approaches to funding. So mitigation, you're able to draw in private sector funding. 
to to drive uh, action. Adaptation is much more about public sector funding, which makes it it much more challenging. So there's no doubt that even the science is indicating that that finance and available finance is is a real barrier to the kind of ambitious action that we need to see in parts of the world. And of course, those gaps are the largest for for the global south, where there is the most need, where there is the most vulnerability. KwaZulu Natal, Devon. We have seen the floods. We have seen the severe. Um, damages that uh, that has, has, has hurt. What what some has been your observation? I mean, KwaZulu-Natal is still recovering right now of, of of from the floods and the heavy rains and still continuing as well. As an expert on on the on some of these issues, what some of the advice have you been given? What some of the engagements that are happening on a provincial level? So because I'm here in my IPCC role, obviously I can't speak to to the issues that that government is is addressing. Yeah. Um, but what I can say is is that the science has become more sophisticated. So, yeah. for example, if you look at the floods we experienced in KwaZulu-Natal in April, May of, of last year, our attribution science has improved. So we're now able to look at those sorts of events and determine the extent to which climate change has had an impact on them. And those particular mm-hmm. floods, and you're absolutely correct, they had a devastating impact on our province were twice as likely to have occurred because of climate change. So what has happened is that the return time on those sort of events has dropped from 40 years to 20 years. Now, Mm -hmm. what does that tell us? It means that we're going to be experiencing these extreme events much more frequently as the atmosphere uh, continues to, to heat up. And that must send really important signals to to policymakers at the provincial and and local level. Uh, Our province and indeed the city I work in is still battling to deal with the infrastructure loss, uh, particularly the impact to our water systems, both uh, water uh, distribution and and wastewater treatment, Mm. really indicating, as I said right at the beginning, that climate change is not only impacting our future prospects for development, but it's undermining development we've already achieved. And I think, you know, the political uh, leadership in in the the city is certainly very mindful of that. Just two weeks ago, I was at the the workshop convened by the mayor of of Durban to talk about climate change because he really Mm. wants to prioritize it. He can see that climate change is no longer an environmental issue, but Mm. it's a fundamental development issue. Um, And certainly during the course of of that workshop, uh, you know, people present at it were talking about impacts of sea level rise, on infrastructures, the the damage to to infrastructure and where we locate it. So if these floods are going to become more frequent, you know, we need to be talking about moving infrastructure out of those those areas that are are flood prone. We've got almost 600 informal settlements in Durban, and they are in some of the most uh, vulnerable areas. So, again, that's a, a key policy issue. We need to be looking at how we protect those particularly vulnerable parts of, of our population, but also how we use our natural resources. You know, Durban has for many decades been a leader in ecosystem-based adaptation. So using the rich ecosystems of, of our continent, um, and in, in Durban's case, indeed, our city, to increase our adaptive capacity to take the peaks off or floods, and that means looking at things like biodiversity restoration. So a very broad range of policies are on history to, to tackle these problems. It's quite important. Well, wear your IPCC hat right now. <laughs> Just uh, in terms of 
where you think South Africans continue to to hold uh, quite in, in influential positions to various multilateral organizations as well. And your your, your view on South Africans uh, participating and taking leadership role at a multilateral organization or even regional organization of, of, of certain interests like dynamic change, finance and all that. Just how significant is it? And also your view or how South Africa is viewed by the international experts in terms of our experts talking about uh, the, our research, what comes out of, of this country as well, as far as research is concerned, as far as scientists from South Africa, for example. We have seen during COVID how, how instrumental they were and some of the uh, research findings as well. Your assessment of uh, South, African, South African scientists and experts in various fields taking positions at various uh, global governance institutions? Well, I, I, I must just admit, I think it's not only South Africa, but I think it's Africa's time to lead. You know, yeah. we, we are the continent, um, I think, which is going to determine what the outcome of the century will look like. The decisions made on this continent, I think, have global implications. And so I think it's really important that Africans, be they South Africans or other African colleagues, are absolutely around the table to bring, uh, you know, a very clear and lived perspective on the challenges and, and opportunities on, on the continent. And, and I think we're increasingly seeing um, us being brought to the table because our work is respected. I mean, you, you quote the, the experience with COVID where our scientists led. I, I think the nomination for chair of the IPCC is an acknowledgement of the, the science being done in South Africa. I, I think we are acknowledged as leaders. We are acknowledged as leaders who also have lived experiences of the challenge. We're, we're not remote from some of these challenges. We're living in them. Um, and I think that also brings a, a very useful perspective. So I'm very confident that this is the century where, where Africa really does need to, to step up. It does need to lead. I think this nomination is a reflection of the fact that that our science is is valued and and respected at at the global level and certainly if elected you know I would look to encourage more South African scientists and more scientists from Africa to be involved in the IPCC to bring their important knowledge and their voice to the table. Mm. You have stepped out indeed and uh, accepted the nomination so we gladly thank you so much for for doing that as well taking these uh, responsibilities you have been doing as co-chair but also now uh, being um, being on, on the line to be considered as well. Thank you so much for your time and really all the best in the coming days. Thank you so much Tolly. Really appreciate it.